Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we continue our mentorship journey where we help one of our listeners workshop the pilot from inception to final draft. So we are once again joined by Ben Warner, our mentee for this year. Welcome, Ben. Hey guys, thanks for having me back. Thanks for being with us. And this week we are taking a look at the beat sheet of his drama pilot, The Pirate King, which you can read at paperteam.co slash 193. So let's Let's get started. Just a quick recap of the mentorship that we're doing here and the goal. It's essentially a monthly workshop where we help one of our listeners, a writer, create a new original TV pilot script from inception to final draft. Yeah, in our first 2020 mentorship episode last month, uh, which is PT190, we were introduced to Ben's new hour-long historical fiction drama pilot, The Pirate King, and we also got to know a little bit about the fascinating world and the characters, as well as a basic overview of the show and how Ben saw it playing out. We then gave him a few questions to ponder over and had a creative discussion about the show. So this week, Ben moved on to the next step of his project, which was the beat sheet slash early outline, which is what this episode will be all about. Absolutely. And uh, if you want to hear Ben's thoughts on our first session, and the process he's been going through to write this uh, beat sheet and ponder some of the questions we asked him in that first episode, you can take a listen to our Patreon-exclusive updates where Ben tackled all these thoughts and more. And you can uh, find that at paperdeam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. As we said also last mentorship episode, we want this process to be as interactive with you guys as possible. So we would always love to hear your thoughts and your own interactions via email, Twitter, the Facebook group. Obviously, ask at PPT co is our email address and if you want to share your own ideas for your latest pilot or post a rough beats for feedback from fellow listeners please feel free to do so in the tv writers room uh, facebook group and we really encourage everyone listening to this to be part of that process and help each other along the way since our last mentorship episode, we had a couple of pieces of feedback interactions from our listeners. One was from Dave Crossman in the TV Writers Room Facebook group, who said, congrats to Ben Warner for winning the mentorship from the Jets. His teaser was incredible, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the new project develops. So thank you, Dave, for your kind words to Ben and us. So we're looking forward to, to looking into it, too. And we also had another one of our listeners, Joe Bruckner, reach out and mention that he has uh, a number of books on Jean Lafitte. I think it might be a subject he was fascinated by as well, right, Alex? Hey, you sent me a photo of this pile of books saying, uh, got a few out of print books in the collection. If uh, Ben wants to borrow the books to help, he's welcome to do so. And uh, Ben, I will uh, forward his information if you need more research documents. We'll arrange a, a COVID safe transaction for you guys. <laughs> And uh, as mentioned, if you have your own thoughts about the process, uh, the speech, the outline, etc., or have your own questions that you want to ask uh, either us or Ben about the Pirate King and his writing, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And now let's jump into the beat sheet. So we're going to have Ben just talk us through uh, his speech sheet real quick so that you're all familiar with how it goes. And then we will give him some notes and have a creative discussion around it. So uh, whenever you're ready, Ben, take it away. Okay. Cold open. We open on a hazy, low-visibility day out in the open sea. The pride, Lafitte's impressive flagship, emerges from the thick fog. We meet Jean Lafitte, barking out orders and looking every bit the gentleman pirate. He is well-dressed, with an aristocratic flair to his clothing and speech. His men, however, look like your run-of-the-mill pirates. They are in pursuit of a Spanish merchant ship, but when a second ship appears, Jean decides that chasing the two ships in the fog would be too dangerous, and he calls off the chase. Mauricio Santos, Jean's quote-unquote loyal first mate, appeals to the captain's ego. We start to get the idea that Lafitte's ego may be a huge weakness for him going forward. Lafitte is convinced and continues chasing the ships through a narrow pass. The ships emerge from the other side of the pass and suddenly stop, turn, and open fire with hidden cannons, more firepower than a merchant ship has any business having. They're not merchants at all, but heavily armed mercenaries. Jean commands his men bravely and fights off the mercenaries that board his ship, but it's no use. Many of his men are killed quickly, and he knows the battle is lost. In the haze of battle, one of his own men turns and attacks him. Jean yells at the man, who he thinks is just confused, until another of his own men attacks him. Soon all of his surviving men are turning on him, and he is forced to cut several down. Jean realizes he's been betrayed and led into an ambush. As the gunfire stops, the haze on deck clears. Lafitte is left face-to-face -face with Mauricio, and a dozen traitorous pirates standing side by side with Spanish mercenaries. Jean demands an explanation from Mauricio, but receives none. 
Mauricio capitalizes on the shock of the moment and digs a dagger through Jean's chest before tossing the captain down into the rocky sea below. Darkness before a hand grasps at a sandy embankment. Jean pulls himself from the ice-cold waters. He's bleeding heavily, barely holding on. He musters his strength and turns back to the ocean, just in time to watch his ship sail away, leaving him for dead. Act 1 Some time has passed since the betrayal, and we find Lafitte on board a small merchant ship. Gone are his fancy clothes and neatly trimmed mustache. He looks sickly, emaciated. He sports a shaggy beard, unkempt hair, and a fresh set of scars. He approaches the boat's captain, who is wearing Jean's old hat and coat, albeit a dirty, worn version of them. Jean tells the captain that they're close to his home, and if he could just be let off ashore or given use of a rowboat, he would be thankful. The captain informs Jean that his clothes bought passage, but not the use of a rowboat or a drop-off. If Jean intends to make it to shore, he best starts swimming. The crew laugh as Jean is forced to jump overboard and swim into the bayou. After a few hours wading through the swamp, Jean is exhausted. To make matters worse, he finds himself face-to-face with a massive gator. He struggles to escape the dangerous animal, but he's tired and slow. Right when it looks like he's a goner, he is whisked out of the water and onto a small boat by two young men. He thanks the men for their help, and they offer him food and shelter for the night. Night is falling over the bayou as Jean and his hosts eat by candlelight in a small shack of a home. He regales them with stories of his past as an older man enters the room. Jean sees the man enter and has a brief look of recognition. He hides his face as the younger men explain Jean's presence to their father. The father is happy to have guests and takes a spot at the table, but becomes suspicious when Jean refuses to meet his gaze. He shifts a candle, illuminating more of Jean's face, and the atmosphere in the room turns tense. He asks his sons if they've ever heard of the legendary pirate Jean Lafitte, telling the romanticized version of his exploits, before shifting the story and explaining to them how Jean had deceived his former crew, telling them that they were legal privateers while actually sailing as lawless pirates. He says how several of the crew were arrested for piracy, and Jean was nowhere to be found. He finishes it with, Ain't that right, Captain Lafitte? Busted, Jean fully meets his gaze. The father adds that Jean is supposed to be dead, and Mauricio Santos would pay a pretty penny to learn otherwise. Jean makes a break for the door, but the father draws a pistol and shoots Jean through the stomach as he runs. The father and his two sons pursue Jean through the bayou, but Jean uses his mastery of the terrain to evade the men. After a tense chase and fight, Jean is forced to kill all three men to keep his survival a secret. We notice, however, that Jean's pistol wound has been covered in swamp sludge, with bugs already buzzing at the fresh wound. Jean steals their boat and paddles upriver. Act 2. Jean makes his way back to his blacksmith shop in New Orleans, which is still run by his brother, Pierre Lafitte. On his way, he notices some new characters in the street, mainly intimidating voodoo practitioners that have taken root in his absence. The former blacksmith shop slash smuggling warehouse has transformed into a bar, much to Jean's dismay. He argues with his brother, who is now committed to living on the straight and narrow. Jean argues that they are pirates, and they can never live a normal life. Pierre attempts to convince his brother otherwise, but fails. Pierre informs Jean that Mauricio Santos now controls Jean's former smuggling operation, wealth, and connections. Pierre mentions that Jean is still considered a hero by many locals for his actions in the Battle of New Orleans, and that he may seek old allies with political power to grant him a pardon or offer him help. Jean agrees and decides that he will reach out to an old flame, the former governor's daughter, Louise Claiborne. Pierre reminds Jean that he had previously placed a bounty on Louise's father, the former governor's head, and Jean replies that he put one on mine first. Nevertheless, Jean decides to go ahead with his plan. That night, Jean sneaks past guards and surprises Louise, who is terrified to see him, having already heard of his death. While she seems happy to know that Jean is alive, she is afraid to be seen with the notorious criminal. Louise says her father wields little political power these days. Years of slander and controversy have left him with few friends, and he is on the verge of bankruptcy. And besides that, Jean had placed a bounty on his head. Jean repeats that her father had placed one on his first. Louise affirms that her father won't be useful, but reluctantly agrees to put Jean in touch with a powerful man who may be able to help him. Jean asks where to find the man, and she replies that he will find Jean when the time is right. Act 3. Jean is changing the dressing on his wounds, which we see now are in the early stages of a serious infection. He speaks to Pierre, and we find out that he has been living in the back room of the bar for at least a week. Jean tells Pierre that he needs to go out and stretch his legs, which Pierre argues against, but Jean is confident. Quote, no one knows these streets better than I do. Jean steps out into the street and doesn't make it far before he is assaulted by several men. 
He fights a good fight, but the damage from the infected wound is already starting to take effect. He tires quickly and is eventually beaten by the men. The mysterious attackers scoop him up, blindfold him, and bind him before tossing him in the back of a carriage. John awakens in a dark room. He is tied up with what appears to be a doctor inspecting his infection. The doctor tells him that if he doesn't treat his wound, the fever will take him within the week. The doctor leaves and the leader of the gang of men who kidnapped him appears. He cuts John loose, throws him a pile of clothes, and tells John to clean himself up. John emerges in a clean, high-fashioned getup, his beard now trimmed and hair slicked. He's surprised to find out that he is at a fancy ball in a stately manner. He's shocked by his surroundings and not sure who he is meant to be meeting with. A man is going around the room regaling guests with great historical stories, but Jean disagrees with the man on the historical accuracy of one of his claims. This upsets the man, but Jean doesn't think much of it. Later, Jean is beckoned into a private room where he is introduced to the very same man he has just insulted, Jacques St. Germain. Jean takes notice of the room's strange decor, seemingly occult artifacts, and thick blackout shades covering all the windows. But most curious of all is Jacques' thick, dark red wine that he pours from a separate bottle than the wine he pours for Jean. Jacques reveals that he is politically connected, rich, and dangerous. He says he respects Jean as a patriot and as the hero of New Orleans and would like to help him, but he does nothing for free. Jean asks what he may do in exchange, seeing as how he lost all his wealth and power. Jacques tells him that he is being threatened by Marie Laveau, the evil voodoo queen in her insane devil-worshipping cult. He tells Jean that he would like a meeting with Marie, but she is unwilling to even speak with him. Jacques tells Jean that if he can arrange a meeting, read, kidnap, the voodoo queen, then Jacques would be greatly in his debt. Before leaving, Jean's wounds begin to bleed through his shirt. Jacques seems fixated on it and tells Jean to be sure to clean it as the wound smells infected. Act 4. Jean plans to make a move on Laveau with his brother Pierre. Pierre offers what little knowledge he has on Laveau and warns Jean that she is powerful and well-guarded and that Jean may be getting in over his head. Jean sees no other option and chooses to proceed. That night, Jean sneaks into Marie's compound, stealthily dispatching guards along the way. However, he is now feeling the effects of his infection. He sweats profusely and fights to maintain consciousness. He manages to fight his way into the inner circle of her compound, but is met by an ambush. Somehow, Marie was aware that Jean is coming. Jean believes he has been betrayed by Jacques, but she tells him that this is not the case. In the ensuing fight with Marie's guards, Jean is wounded further and eventually succumbs to his infection and passes out. As Jean fades in and out of consciousness, he begins to suffer fever-induced hallucinations. Meanwhile, Laveau goes to work in treating his wounds. Jean watches Marie perform a voodoo healing ritual, and the combination of the bizarre ritual and Jean's fevered hallucinations make us question if we're seeing real magic or not. Marie dances and chants with a large snake wrapped around her neck. Jean fades in and out, seeing the shadows dance along with the voodoo queen as they change forms, sing, and taunt him. Jean slips out of consciousness. He awakens a day or two later, having been healed by Marie, who he finds cleaning his rapidly healing wound. Jean is astounded by the woman, impressed by her commanding presence, grace, and knowledge. Marie explains to Jean that she is wanted dead, not for her beliefs or perceived power, but because of all the dirt she has on the wealthy and powerful citizens of New Orleans, gathered from years as a spiritual advisor to the city's elite. We close with Marie offering Jean a new, mysterious opportunity. Thank you, Ben. Now let's share some of our thoughts about the speed sheet and uh, open it up for discussion. So first, let's look at some of the things we really appreciated, not just about the show, but also this uh, beat sheet. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great. I think there's a really good sense of action and tension in the kind of introduction, teaser, first act as he's journeying all the way back to New Orleans. It really feels like a good sense of uh, drive and interesting kind of momentum going on there. Yeah, I definitely agree that, especially in terms of the world building, this is something we touched upon last time, but there's a lot of potential there in terms of the characters, uh, seeing the growth, seeing the city, New Orleans, a lot of the political stuff that's a bit teased at. And overall, we will uh, talk more about specific uh, scenes and so forth as we go. But overall, I definitely agree that it was a good entry point for uh, Lafitte's character. Yeah, I think overall, there's a lot of depth to this kind of world and this story and I think that, you know, it's clear that there are so many things going on that, you know, you can mine this for kind of many seasons of content with all the political intrigue and the machinations, the old friends and enemies, all that kind of thing. So I definitely see a lot of narrative potential in the world and the story. So let's get into some uh, macro notes about the outline of the story and let's start with structure and content of it. 
Yeah, so my two biggest thoughts about the structure of the pilot, and this might be slightly of a hot take depending on uh, what Nick uh, thinks and uh, what you think, Ben, but essentially I thought it was very bottom heavy uh, as an episode. And what I mean by that is I really felt like Act 1 was much more of a teaser with Act 2 being the real Act 1 and Act 3 being the real Act 2 and uh, Act 4 being the real Act 3 and so forth. And essentially starting the episode much later where we're also missing sort of a, a final act four and five propelling us forward with some sort of set piece. Uh, so that was kind of like my first big thought. And then the second uh, big thought is I was missing a bit of that B and C story, sort of like the world plot to really flesh out the characters that we mentioned, but really bring the world building to a next level and have all that come to a head, uh, perhaps in that act four or act five. Yeah, I think I agree that there are some sort of act breaks that could be tweaked or, or played with and, and to help kind of the overall structure and momentum of the story a little bit more. For me, I think it feels just a little bit like we lose some of that great momentum we had at the start with all the, the action and you know getting betrayed on the boat and making his way back to New Orleans. And then as soon as we get into the city, it feels like we kind of then switch modes into a lot of conversations and exposition without as much of a clear direction leading towards something for Jean. In a way, it reminds me of kind of like a video game where your character arrives somewhere and they can kind of talk to whoever they want and find all the side quests. But, you know, I think that we really want a clearer sense of that main narrative goal, even if it is a false lead just for the pilot. So, you know, here's a bad example. But if his big goal is to find and confront his old first mate, Mauricio, who, who took this empire from him and betrayed him, and then he's doing that throughout the pilot. But when he finally tracks him down, he realizes Mauricio is already dead or he's untouchable because he's now, you know, encased in the, the elite of the city or whatever. And then now he has to figure out another way to get to him. And he does that through Jacques or Laveau and that kind of thing. I did feel like we lost track of some of that setup at the start with Mauricio. Aside from him being mentioned by the guy in the shack who shoots Lafitte, we don't see him again for the rest of the episode and we don't get a, a clear sense of that through line, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's funny because I definitely felt like that was a setup that I expected to pay off to. And this is something that we discussed last time about if we're moving forward with that teaser that is relatively disconnected from the rest of the pilot, at least narratively speaking, it's almost like an expositionary teaser. I still wanted that connection that I was missing. And it's funny because, and uh, Ben, uh, we really want to hear your thoughts on this, but the more you, we talk about this, the question that was thinking about what sort of the why here, why now, why is Lafitte coming back in this moment? And I feel like that is perhaps the question slash answer that's not being uh, tackled here, which might explain sort of the momentum uh, that you speak of. Yeah, I think you guys have made a, a lot of good points there. And I think it's one of those things um, when you get so hyper-focused, sometimes you lose the big picture. And I think you guys are right that Mauricio probably should factor in more. I think that's something I'm going to have to consider when I like, go into you know further outlining and eventually the draft. And John does seem like the kind of guy that his first thought's going to be revenge, even if he knows that he doesn't have a lot of power and, and a lot of backup. So I think maybe, uh, like Nick said, condensing some of the conversations and maybe putting in a little bit more of a revenge plot against Mauricio that could drive uh, at least the early portion of the episode before we get to things like Jacques and Marie Laveau. Yeah, for sure. I think it'll just help give us a clearer sense of that through line from the beginning. And, and really, I think part of what, to me, wasn't working necessarily about the end of Act 4 was just the lack of the same kind of payoff. You know, it did feel like we were diving deeper into this stuff and there was a lot more to unravel. However, I really wanted that kind of internal sense of an episodic payoff from the beginning where he's betrayed to some kind of beat about Mauricio, whatever it happens to be, and how that ties into the rest of the series. Yeah, and even looking, uh, again, uh, this ties back to what I said earlier, but even if we're keeping with this idea that you have a Jacques hiring Lafitte to get Marie, and like that is sort of the idea of the episode, I still felt like in that capacity, there was that sort of final act missing. I think it's a, a teaser in Act 4, and I would contend that the teaser almost feels like more of an act one kind of thing. And it feels still slightly disconnected. I think that's part of the issue I have with that top of the episode. But even putting that aside for a moment, 
Overall, I just felt like the momentum was there. If you sort of start the episode later and you have much more of an active drive, which we'll talk about more when we get to sort of the character of it all. If you have more of an active drive with a Lafitte as sort of an active participant, whether that's with this revenge, whether that's with the gambit of trying to get Lovo for Jack or whatever the case may be, there was still sort of that final act essentially that for me was missing because the setup pieces were all there. You had Lafitte interacting or introducing himself or reacquainting himself with the city, with his brother, with the daughter and all these different characters. But then that's sort of like essentially act one and maybe act two, but you're still missing that second half of act two and act three, just to put it in like feature uh, terms. Yeah, I think those are good points. That's definitely something I'm going to have to think about and sort of restructure things. Let's look a bit at Lafitte as a character, his motivation, and making him a more active lead. This ties into that kind of sense of narrative momentum, and they're, they're kind of intertwined as an issue. But, you know, at the start of the episode, he is very active. He's very, you know, clear in his goals. He's trying to get to the city. And then once he kind of gets there, it feels a little bit more like he's a little bit more directionless, which makes sense to some extent because, you know, he just arrived back in the city and it's a little bit overwhelming and that kind of thing. But even just kind of in his decisions about how he's going to start climbing the power structure and everything, it feels like a lot of things happening to him rather than him going out and pursuing them. So, you know, he walks out into the street just to go for a walk and gets beaten up and kidnapped and taken to the vampire guy whose name is escaping me right now, rather than, you know, pursuing some kind of goal actively and ending up there along the way, that sort of thing. Yeah, I definitely have the same thoughts. And one of my solves for this is, and this might be a bit uh, cliche, but uh, I definitely feel like because of who Lafitte is as a character, as a force to be reckoned with, and to really emphasize the contrast of who he was before versus who he is now, I definitely feel like it would be really nice to have some sort of superpower, quote unquote, assigned to him. And reading through the beat sheet and the story that was presented to me, I really was drawn to the idea that Lafitte's superpower seems to be his knowledge of navigating not just the waters as a pirate, but also New Orleans as a city. And contrasting that with where he is now, where at some point he is getting kidnapped and he has to do uh, certain things for Shaq, it really made sense to me that if his superpower is essentially knowing the streets, that would explain why Jacques wants Lafitte to try to get a Marie Laveau. And, I, and that was uh, tied back to some logic issues I had uh, with the whole Jack kidnapping Jean of it all. But putting that aside, if we have a better clarity in terms of why Lafitte is doing the things he is doing, and then conversely sort of showcasing the obstacles that he's bumping against and really clarifying that, oh, people think he's like the badass Lafitte of the old days. Well, maybe not, but either way, they want to use him for certain purposes. And maybe he wants to do that, or maybe he doesn't, but ultimately he's confronted with obstacles that make him question who he is as a person. I think that ties back to what I said earlier about sort of the why here, why now, why is Lafitte coming back? Why is he doing the things he's doing outside of, you know, not being uh, beaten up and uh, kidnapped? And I feel like clarifying his angle and why people are attracted to him through sort of the actions that he's doing the episode would really make him much more of an active character. I think that's a really good point. And I like your idea about, you know, navigation really, you know, as, as a captain, obviously navigating is a huge thing. And his knowledge, the bayous is what helped win the Battle of New Orleans. So if he knows the streets so well and he knows the bayou so well, it, it could be one of those things that that's why Jacques needs him. It's that particular skill that'll help him gain access to Marie Laveau. Maybe your compound is in the bayou or inaccessible or Jean knows the uh, sewers for old smuggling routes or something. And then when the streets change, you know, it'll, it'll give Jean more of a, you know, like you said, like his superpower, but things are different now. So he'll have to maybe bluster his way through. And maybe he, instead of going by himself, he's now leading some of Jacques men who already don't trust him. And he makes a couple navigational errors because the terrain has changed. And uh, those are things that I think could tie in. And obviously that affects his ego, which I think I've kind of settled on as being his biggest driving um, 
personality trait. Right. And I feel like you can marry sort of all those ideas at once where on one hand, one issue I had, which I'm going to try to solve in a second, is the idea that if his superpower, Lafitte's superpower is navigating the streets, then I don't want to have him be impotent from the get-go by being kidnapped by Shaq. However, I feel like you can solve all those issues where if Lafitte is proactive and to Nick's point is maybe seeking Jack to get revenge on his old mate and he goes to Jack proactively somehow for that purpose but Jack essentially subverts that says well here's a deal I'm gonna help you get revenge but right now I need you to kidnap this other person because your superpower is navigating the streets and I'm gonna give you some men and we're all gonna work together to get this woman and in exchange this other thing will happen for your benefit and at least that gives him much more of a sort of an immediate sense of urgency of I need to get revenge right here right now this is the way I'm doing it now I may be surprised by Jacques' turn of events but at least I also know why I'm being valued and perhaps then sort of the the obstacle that he's confronted by is that he actually fails as we've seen in sort of the current act four not succeeding in uh, kidnapping uh, Marilovo because he actually doesn't know the streets, right? Like he knew the streets back when, but he doesn't know the streets now. His navigation purposes are not as good as they were. And that's when you sort of explore Lafitte on a deeper level of, wait, he's not quite the man he used to be. Yeah, I think you can even kind of sprinkle that in if it's not too repetitive of a beat with something like the kidnapping thing instead of him just kind of going out for a walk and getting attacked by these guys. You know, maybe it's a cool chase scene through New Orleans and he's like running around through the alleyways and knows a quick way to escape. But, you know, it turns out that's been paved over and now there's something else there and then he gets captured by the dudes and taken to shock kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of fun stuff to play with there. Yeah, I think those are all great points. And I think I'm definitely going to be incorporating some of that into my next set of outlines or notes or... uh eventually when we get into the first draft. Yeah. And I think Alex might have said this, but it makes sense to me if he's going to Jacques and kind of saying, hey, yeah, I'll help you with this Laveau thing. If, you know, once that all goes well, maybe you give me some men and I can go deal with Mauricio kind of thing. He's trying to make this kind of bargain and then maybe just realizes he doesn't really have that kind of political clout anymore or whatever. And he has to really kind of (laughs) work his way up from there. But, you know, at least giving us that sense of direction of why he's doing this and what he's working towards. Right. I feel like you can solve all those issues by uh, making Lafitte more active through his direction, through seeking Jacques, through even his failure at getting Marie, doing all those things that essentially showcase who he is as a character and also essentially answers the question, why here, why now? And also, why is he getting delayed? And then that way we can organically get exposition about sort of the prism of the world, the politics of why is Jacques really trying to get Marie and all those things through Lafitte. Those are great notes. Um, I I guess that's that's sort of, you know, trying to get after Mauricio and using Jacques as that connection to help him. I guess that was sort of my intention, but I I could see I definitely didn't uh, make that clear in my outline. But yeah, I think the end game for Jean definitely all drives towards Mauricio and Jacques and Marie are going to be, you know, they're just the people that are going to help him do it eventually. Right. But I feel like that's the sense of payoff that we're missing of. We don't, I mean, sort of my take to go back to my initial point about the outline being uh, bottom heavy, so to speak, was actually that we didn't really need that teaser just because it felt more like a huge act one than just a quick teaser. But that said, regardless of having that, I don't necessarily need to actually see Mauricio as the payoff, but I just need to understand the context of where he is now and why. Sort of like, again, if you set up the fact that he got betrayed by his best mate and then he's coming back to seek revenge and he's uh, going through for the entire pilot, he's basically getting diverted by the side quests. Uh, Ultimately, there needs to be a payoff as to him meeting or not meeting or something to do with Mauricio. And then that actually is going to tie back to another comment I made at the top that I want to circle back on here, which is those missing B and C story. And I really feel there's a lot of potential here, especially with the character of Louise, because Louise is someone you introduce relatively early on, and then we completely lose track of. And there's a lot of potential there because of the fact that she has such an ingrained history with Lafitte. In fact, Lafitte 
proactively seeks her out. And at that point, she's made aware that Lafitte is back. And so I really wanted, I don't exactly know what that story would be necessarily in the pilot, but I really wanted something with Louise in the pilot as either the B or C plot. I would contend that that is the B plot and then the C plot would be either Jacques or the brother or something to do with the world. So that way we can really get a better sense of sort of the politics, but also the setup and the setting. That's a good point. And uh, yeah, Louise was such a late addition to the story because I didn't even stumble upon her in my research until late. So yeah, I think definitely filling out the BNC story is going to be big going forward. Yeah, for sure. I think that will help give more of a, a filled out sense to the story and give us the ability to kind of cut between things and start to build that tension so that it doesn't just kind of feel like he's going from one conversation to the next sort of thing. Yeah, and you can also drive things to head. I said at the top that I was missing that set piece, and I feel like the main set piece of the episode should be essentially Lafitte trying to get Murray and failing. And that leads to another sort of exploration with voodoo. But if you still have that sort of Louise time bomb set up early on in the final act, you can join those stories together. And maybe there's some sort of payoff there with Mauricio. Maybe, I mean, this is a bad pitch here, but maybe Louise is actually secretly in bed with Mauricio or something like that, where you connect the dots in a way that thread the pilot, you think, oh, maybe Louise is on Lafitte's side and she's not, or any, any which way you can go. There's really an infinite assortment of stories there. But I just wanted much more meat there in terms of Louise and uh, even Marie to some extent. And that's why I was lacking that set piece. And if you move everything up where, you know, your act one is now the teaser and act two is now act one and so forth, you have a whole act and a half essentially of story there where you can really give us that payoff on all those characters. Yeah. uh, And that's one of those things that in my solo episode, I kind of noted on that. I think I was getting stuck into starting the story, the meat of it a little too late. So uh, I'm definitely going to take that into consideration and probably uh, move things up. Yeah. I can see that the connective tissue is going to need a lot more filling out. For sure. And some of that is just the fact that it's an outline and a beat sheet. And, you know, a lot of that comes to you as well when you're going through it, but it it helps just to have a, a rough idea. So just on the stakes for the moment, I'm curious kind of what you see as the the stakes in this episode on, you know, a personal level for Lafitte on, you know, a physical kind of danger level on a broader series arc level, that kind of thing. And one thing that kind of intrigued me was uh, his wound that he gets. I guess he gets stabbed at the start and then he also gets shot later as well. And then it's kind of like slowly getting infected and that sort of thing. In your mind, how does this affect him in a narrative way? And yeah, I guess we'll start with that and we can kind of get further into it. I think the wound is sort of uh, becomes this ticking time bomb. You know, it's one of those things that I think when I go back now and maybe start tying Mauricio more into the plot, like you guys have suggested, maybe he even comes to terms with the fact that this wound might kill him, but he doesn't want to go down without having a shot at Mauricio first. And that would add to the whole urgency of the whole story. I mean, the stakes really are just for this intro episode. it's, It's really just survival, I think, because he's just being thrown into this mix He's weakened and he's really at his lowest stage. So I think it's really just a matter of getting out alive. If you want the audience to really buy the fact that this, sort of this is the last ditch effort, then we really need to somehow from the get-go, even before he has the wound, to really set up the fact that this is do or die for him. This is it. Uh, he uh, has really come out there to seek revenge or do whatever he has come there to do. And this is his one shot. And as soon as that one shot is immediately compromised by Jacques saying, hold up, we're not going to go to Mauricio right now. I need you to do this one thing. And then he gets injured. And then there's all these complications that escalate to really put into perspective that this one shot that you were given, uh, you're wasting it. And then you have Lafitte being in mortal danger, realizing that essentially he's wasted that shot. Potentially, maybe he's being saved from Maria or uh, as you have now. And maybe that actually propels him on a different direction. It's sort of like the epiphany, especially if uh, just to go back to our first episode, we talked about uh, this is Breaking Bad in reverse, where essentially he is a Scarface going to become Mr. Chips or version of that, essentially, where if that is sort of microcosm version of that, where this is step one and him realizing that actually I don't need to be Heisenberg, I can just be 
Walter White in that one moment. And the fact that uh, if all those things that he's done in that episode leads into that realization, given the context that this is the one shot for him, et cetera, et cetera, I really feel like you get to a new level for Lafitte. So I'm definitely going to have to consider that. And in terms of the wound itself, I guess there's two things. One is like, what's the timeline from when he is stabbed and thrown overboard at the start through when he gets to New Orleans? Is that a couple of days, a couple of weeks? From when he's originally betrayed, maybe a month. Right. I was just kind of curious what the, you know, he gets stabbed initially in the chest and then later on he's shot again. So it's kind of like two different wounds. Is there a way to like make it the one wound that just gets progressively worse from his original betrayal? And, you know, it's all kind of a metaphor for blah, blah, blah. But in terms of like being shot to, I wonder how much that kind of stretches the believability of him being able to like run around and get into all these fights and have this thing slowly happen. I, I get like the, the infection getting worse kind of thing, but like, could he survive being stabbed and shot in the same period? Like, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious about like the, the logic of that, although, you know, it can be heightened. My initial idea was that it was going to be his wound that he received from Mauricio that reopens in the fight with the sort of swamp folk. Oh, yeah. So maybe I'll go back to that and, and that you're right. Then it would tie back more into Mauricio and the idea of betrayal and how uh, even the, the search for vengeance is sort of a infection. What is the timeline between the teaser and the first act? Originally it was about a month. I might have to condense that if it's going to be the same wound that reopens. So um, maybe shorten it down to, you know, two weeks or so, but you know, that's probably not enough time to grow a whole beard and <laughs> become emaciated, but certainly his clothes will be different. There's enough ways to, to make him look like he's fallen. That's interesting because I, I really thought there was a longer stretch of time between the two because from my understanding, you were saying that he comes back uh, essentially ruined. Uh, and, and I compared it to kind of Monte Cristo last time where it's essentially uh, he gets betrayed by his first mate and then... I don't know, yours perhaps passed by and then the city has moved on. And so when he comes back, it really is not the city he once knew. And I don't think you can really play that if it's only been a month, essentially. Right? Yeah, no, I think the, the confusion there is that he hasn't been back to New Orleans in over a decade. He left New Orleans and has been out on the sea and in different colonies. Uh, New Orleans was sort of his home base for a long time, but he was out for a while. And that's when things have changed. So when he's wounded and needs to return, come home, that's when everything's different. But, you know, Alex, it might even be better. I mean, you could be right that he could be out for that long and then, you know, make it a more substantial period of time between the the betrayal and him returning too. My whole thing was much more, I feel like it's, uh, in a different way, it's kind of like the wound thing that Nick uh, hinted at where there's a bit of those like double elements that emotionally it's hard to really grasp. Are we supposed to feel like this evolution of Lafitte is based on him being betrayed uh, a month ago or is it because he's been away from New Orleans for years? And sort of that contrast that you're playing with, the more condensed it is, the quote unquote simpler it is, I think the easier it is to really, uh, especially because the world is so dense and you have so many characters and it's a period piece and so forth, the clearer the story is on a very basic level, the easier I feel like you can sell the emotions and Lafitte's journey through those emotions is kind of what I'm trying to get at. It might just be too complicated to for people like you know to have the two time gaps between him not coming back to New Orleans but still being a pirate and then him coming back with nothing just muddies the waters a little bit. You think in a way? Yes. I mean, I, again, this ties back to sort of my take, which is I don't feel I necessarily need the teaser, the, the existing teaser with the sort of the flashback of it. Regardless, I feel like if you get a sense from the get go that, you know, he was betrayed by his first mate and essentially that led to his collapse, the collapse of his legacy, all those different things, it crystallized it. It doesn't, you know, it's not a one and done thing, obviously, but it's sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back where he was left for dead. And then now he's coming back to seek revenge, which is a symbol for him trying to regain his legacy or so he thinks. And through that, he's confronted with sort of this new New Orleans that he's not familiar with because he was gone because of this betrayal and all these other things. You really have all those things coming to a head with Lafitte being confronted with the lack of his legacy, the lack of knowledge about the city, uh, his thirst for revenge, which maybe he realizes isn't really his true purpose. All of those things that, you know, again, like if you collapse all those elements into one clear event that encapsulates his fall from grace and the fact that he left uh, New Orleans years ago, I really feel like it would make things much simpler, but in a sort of in a better way almost. 
I agree. I think probably um, I was getting a little strung up on the historical, what I like, you know, the historical timeline. And I don't think I should really limit myself to that. I think the idea you're suggesting is the better idea for the story. And Alex, were you suggesting dropping the, the teaser where he is betrayed in the first place? Is that what you're saying? That is one of my suggestions. I feel like that's a separate conversation, but regardless of that teaser, my suggestion is much more to collapse the timeline or extend the timelines, whichever way Ben wants to go with, but just making that betrayal be the reason essentially why his legacy is gone and why he's left New Orleans all these years and, and sort of making that the event that encapsulates why he, uh, when he comes back, there's such a disconnect between him and the world essentially. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with the timeline note. I'm not sure I agree with like not seeing the betrayal in the first place because it spurs on so much of this action. And now we're kind of talking about involving Mauricio even more. So I think it really helps for us to know exactly what happened. And I don't know what would kind of take its place. Like, is it a montage of him spending years in the swamps or whatever? You know, like, what's the version of us understanding he lost his empire if we don't see that? Yeah, I, I'm not discounting the idea of showing it entirely. It was much more the length of the teaser. My, uh, and I did not explain it properly at the top, but essentially my issue with the teaser was just that it felt in of itself as an act one. In fact, I would contend that the teaser is longer than the actual act one in terms of what happens in both of those things. And so my pitch was essentially, perhaps you can collapse the teaser and act one and make that the teaser or the act one. You don't even necessarily need a teaser but even if you do want a teaser i would want much more of the set piece of that as of the, the betrayal as really the key of that teaser and then we lead straight from that into you know the bad version is he's in the water and then we time jump but uh, i don't know the timeline but uh, we time jump x amount of time to him now seeking revenge and we have a clear goal in mind and a clear understanding that time has passed, he's back in New Orleans, and you can even contrast it however you want, but really see that disheveled person and understanding that time has passed. And he has that clear goal in mind. And within that teaser, within that first act, we need to understand that kind of like Count of Monte Cristo, I feel like that's the best analogy I can make, where he spent all this gap time seeking revenge he developed a special set of skill whatever i mean this terrible pitch but basically <laughs> a version of the only thing on his mind was revenge regaining his legacy all those things the only thing he wanted to do was maybe see louise again or see his brother all those things and now he's finally back after all this time and look how the world has moved on without him Mm -hmm. All those things happening in the teaser and uh, not the teaser, I mean the pilot and throughout the pilot, he realizes because he gets beat up, because he gets wounded, because of Marie, because of all those extra things, maybe the real journey or, you know, it's like the friends we made along the way, not the, you know, not the revenge <laughs> we seek against our first mate. It's interesting. You know, he's lost his, his physical empire of, of wealth and status and whatever, but he still has these contacts and he still knows the, you know, the heart of the city and everything. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Overall, I think there's something to be done there in terms of the timeline and in terms of clarifying. It, it didn't even occur to me, I think, when reading this, that, like there were two different time gaps, you know, the time gap of he hadn't been back to New Orleans in a while and the time gap of, of after the trail. So finding some way to synthesize that into a, just a really clean, simple version, I think would be interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I can see I did, it wasn't entirely clear. And uh, I think I'm, that's something I'm going to have to got to pick one or the other. And I'm definitely leaning towards more time between the um, betrayal and the return. I think Alex makes some really good points about, I think that's a more interesting time period than Lafitte's time out, just kind of sacking, you know, Mexico and Texas, which is, you know, where he actually was for the, that time gap. But I think it's a lot more interesting if that's when he, he loses everything. I, I think those are all good points. Cool. Um, so we just want to get into some micro notes and again, you know, given that it's an outline, I was everything's not going to be super clear, but, uh, just some initial thoughts on this, particularly, I think the first one was regarding some exposition, Alex. Yeah. So again, this is something I slightly uh, mentioned in our very first uh, mentorship episode, but this is just something to keep in mind, especially moving towards the beefed up outline and the first draft and so forth. Uh, in terms of the exposition is as the writer, we got to keep in mind that the audience doesn't know the things that we know. And what I mean by that is uh, in the same way that Lafitte doesn't know the New Orleans that is now, we, the audience, don't know the New Orleans that is now, but we also don't know the New Orleans that was. We don't know Lafitte's references. We don't know all those things. And that definitely is something to be played with. But I definitely want to mention something to be aware of, which is 
a lot of it will be solved by, especially if you compress the timeline and uh, the synthesize the things that we talked about before. But uh, just being aware that the neural lines that we're seeing in the pilot is the only neural lines we're going to see pending flashbacks, obviously. That is our reference. So we're already sort of uh, getting a lot of exposition about what New Orleans is currently, that it's also hard for us to contextualize, okay, this is the New Orleans that is now, but also this is different from the New Orleans that was then because of all those different things. So there's layers upon layers there that, um, especially moving into a draft and all those things, I'm not saying obviously this is solvable in a beat sheet by any means, but this is just something I wanted to mention. And that was especially brought to my attention in, I think, the second act. There were a bunch of double beats where, uh, for example, with the governor putting a hit on on Lafitte, that being sort of uh, repeated and back-to-back with Lafitte's brother and then with Louise, all those information. So I get that you want to convey that thing, but just being aware of all those sort of expositionary moments. I know you're talking about the grander picture, but that one was more meant to be um, a a more humorous beat. And that's why I did the repetition. And also kind of shows that John doesn't necessarily equate legality with morality. But yeah, I think yeah, showing how the city is different. Nick had a great suggestion earlier about maybe he's trying to escape from Jacques' men and all of a sudden there's a wall where there never was a wall, a brick wall or something. He's running down the street. He thinks he's home free. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways I'm, I'm going to be able to layer in bits of the old New Orleans or John's idea of the old New Orleans and contrast it with what we're seeing. And hopefully it'll get across that it is quite different now. Yeah, maybe there's even, this is kind of a little bit out there, but maybe there's even ways to kind of play with that in a some kind of device within the world. Like, you know, you know, in Prison Break, how that guy could just kind of like see all the different, you know, things that make up the different components and he could see like maps in his head and that sort of thing. You know, that's, it's again, kind of an extreme choice, but there are ways, I guess, that you could play with Jacques' vision of what the city should look like when he turns the corner, but then it's suddenly something very different without having to get into like six million flashbacks. Yeah, it's a bit like the Assassin's Creed. I don't know if you guys have played Assassin's Creed, but essentially the version of uh, let's make these superpowers much more visceral in terms of sort of a seeing quadri-dimensionally the world that we're surrounded by. <laughs> Big pitch, but it's uh, just an idea. So uh, also this is, again, uh, Micronotes, and a lot of it is probably going to be redone or changed based on addressing you know, some of the things that we've talked about so far. But a couple of uh, logic questions I had were, one, I was curious why... Jacques was kidnapping Jean to make him kidnap someone else instead of just kidnapping Marie Lovo directly. I feel like some of that is answered by my, like if we go through with the pitch that, you know, his superpowers during the streets and so forth. But just want to hear your thoughts on what Jacques is seeing in Lafitte. Uh, my idea was mostly that because Jean is presumed dead at this point, there's nothing really that would tie back to Jacques. So it's plausible deniability for Jacques. But I, I also really like your idea that John just has this skill that that is crucial to the the mission. You know, I think maybe a little bit of both those factors. Fair enough. Just a, a follow up on that logic question: How does sort of Lafitte know where the new players are, especially Marie, is given that he's been gone all this time? Pierre is going to be kind of his Robin, so to speak, uh, that gives him the lowdown on the new landscape to the best of his ability. So maybe he just knows that she's located in this general area because he's just been around. So Pierre is kind of going to be his advisor into the new New Orleans. Excellent. And I guess a, a logic question or clarification question for me, in terms of when Marie Laveau heals his wounds, how magical are we going with that? Are they literally kind of knitting together in front of our eyes? Is it just that the infection stops? Like, How does that look and work? Yeah, it's going to be a pretty straightforward medical treatment mixed with a, a traditional voodoo ceremony. So she is going to be treating the wounds, but there's, you know, there's dancing and singing elements and possibly even, you know, animal sacrifice elements that are part of that religion. But as far as actual magic that we're seeing, the only actual magic would be Jean's perception of it through his fever dreams. So it's going to be like we spoke about kind of playing in that gray area where Jean seeing this stuff is magical. And maybe even cutting back and forth between what John's seeing and what's actually going on, uh, I think could be fun. So no real magic in that sense, but perceived magic through John's eyes. Yeah, that all sounds interesting. I think the only other thing I'll just kind of caution you about is is maybe making sure to look into perhaps some of 
people's reactions to the portrayal of, you know, voodoo magic and, and that kind of culture and everything in TV and just kind of see how people from those cultures actually kind of like take that and whether it's, you know, what are the offensive stereotypes and what's actually real and what's, you know, considered, you know, a respectful representation of that and everything. I'd just be careful to kind of walk that line and do a lot of research. Yeah, that's super important. I've previously written a script that dealt with a lot of voodoo in a modern era. Um, so I, I have a little bit of familiarity and being respectful is super important to me. So I think that's a, a great point and uh, I'm definitely going to do my best not to portray them in a dishonest or, or you know negative way. All right, Ben, did you have any uh, thoughts or questions or things that you want to discuss besides uh, the many things that we've uh, tackled so far? I think I did before we started, but I have so much to think about now that nothing's coming <laughs> to mind. I think we're, we decided we're going to do another sort of round of uh, outline, a more filled out outline. But when it comes to actual drafts, I just want, I had a formatting question for you guys, so it should be easy. You know, in cable dramas, you always see the act breaks on the page. And I've seen in some, uh, some streaming and like uh, some streaming scripts, pilots, they just kind of sort of write it like a, a 60 page feature with no divisions for the act breaks. What do you guys think about that? I would definitely, especially when it comes to first drafts and so forth, I would definitely write the act breaks. And then worst case, if you want to, you know, give it to a manager or whatever, and this is something I've done before is I would send two versions, essentially one with the act breaks and one without. And that way you can really cater to the particular development person or executive that you want to send it to. Yeah, for me, I love act breaks being written in because especially in the early stages, it really just gives you something to write towards and make sure that that's a really strong moment and, you know, kind of breaking up the story into smaller pieces so it doesn't just, you know, lose that sense of momentum or anything like that. So uh, I personally advocate for kind of putting them in and leaving them in. But as long as you have an idea structurally of the acts you're writing to, I think it can work either way. Exactly. And just to jump on next point just now, I also agree that making the reader's job as easy as possible is extremely important, especially when considering drafts. And I really feel like having those act breaks breaks down the read, essentially, and almost feels like you are accomplishing something as a reader when you finish Act 1 and Act 2, and you can get that sense of progress, whereas if you have sort of this huge, like, 60-page script that's one uniform block, it's psychologically, it's harder to get through, I would say. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, act breaks it is. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh, since uh, you mentioned it, what are you thinking for the next step? Something like a, a beefed up uh, outline or a hybrid format? Yeah, I think so. I guess uh, you might call it like a scriptment formatted closer to a script and, and a little bit more filled out and start hit more of the emotional beats and things like that. Yeah, totally. I think something with, you know, scene headings and then a description of what's going on in the scene and maybe a key line or two, all that kind of thing. Like you said, calling out emotional beats and everything. That sounds good to me. It does to me as well. Well, on that note, thank you so much to Ben for all his work. And uh, before we go uh, for our listeners, don't forget that we are on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at papertm.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You will get access to our Paper Patreon podcast, Cheat Sheets, and there's that exclusive Paper Team mentorship update with Ben's thoughts just for our Patreon supporters. So get on this at papertm.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N and we can keep producing a great show for you like this one every week yeah so thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in and thank you to ben for joining us and for all of your hard work so far on this thank you guys it's great being back and uh, i'm excited to uh, get back to work on this thing excellent and uh for our listeners can you all the show notes including that beat sheet that we've uh, discussed at paperteam.co slash 193 as always i'm on twitter at tv calling I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And uh, where can people find you on social media, Ben? I think at my Instagram, I think is Ben underscore Jammin underscore W. So you can find me there if you want. Great. Excellent. And uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas about uh, the Pirate King or the podcast, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week, we'll be doing our paper scraps for October, where we answer your TV writing questions and talk about uh, all the news around the industry. So tune in uh, for that one. I'll see you then. See you then.